Heavenly Father, thank you for another day of life and health and strength. We pray, Father, that in our study on this evening that you will be pleased with it, that we can, through this study, draw closer to you and generate more gratitude in our hearts towards the sacrifice of your Son. We're thankful for the blood of Jesus that saves us and makes us a spiritual family. Bless us, Father. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you this evening on this Wednesday evening. I really appreciate you uh, studying with me through the book of Hebrews. Uh, believe it or not, but we are about two-thirds finished with the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of the longer books of the New Testament, but uh, we have completed uh, nine chapters in the book. We're about two-thirds of the way finished. And as we've studied this book, what I hope you've seen so far is this book, at least so far, can be divided up into two, into two main sections. In the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews, if you recall, the focus of, of, of the writer, the theme of the writer is the superiority of Christ. Christ is greater. Christ is more superior than anything found under the Old Testament law of Moses. Remember, these Hebrew Christians were actually considering leaving Jesus in order to go back to living under the old law. And, and the point of, of the book is don't leave Jesus. Don't leave Jesus to return to the old law because he is superior to everything found under the old law. That, that's the point of the book. And so if you don't get anything else away from the book of Hebrews, please get that. This book is about the superiority of Jesus. That was the emphasis in the first seven chapters and then beginning in chapter 8 and continuing throughout chapter 10, the writer transitions from talking about the superiority of Christ to talking about the superiority of his covenant. I mean, think about it. If Christ is superior to everything found under the Old Testament system, then naturally we should expect his covenant to be superior to the old covenant. And so the first seven chapters deal with the superiority of Christ, and the next three chapters, chapters 8 through 10, deal with the superiority of his covenant. Jesus' covenant is greater than the covenant of the old. In fact, the Hebrew writer tells us at least three ways in which the covenant of Jesus is superior to the old covenant. First, if you remember back in Hebrews 8 and verse number 6, the Hebrew writer says that the new covenant is a superior covenant because it is built upon superior promises. It is a better covenant because it contains better promises, promises that have to do with receiving true forgiveness of sins. Promises that have to do with receiving true spiritual rest in heaven with God if we're faithful to God. Promises that include receiving full access to God and being able to draw near to God with confidence because of Jesus. 
the new covenant is better than the old covenant because it contains better promises. And then secondly, the new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is, it is built upon a better sanctuary or the high priest of the new covenant ministers in a better sanctuary. Do you remember the ministers or the priest of the old covenant, they labored in an earthly sanctuary. They ministered and offered sacrifices at a portable tabernacle, the tabernacle which was around in Israel during the time of Moses and Saul and King David, and then later the sanctuary would be the temple, the permanent physical structure, the permanent house of worship that was located in the city of Jerusalem. The priests of the Old Covenant, they ministered in an earthly sanctuary, but Jesus, the spiritual high priest, the high priest of the new covenant, he doesn't minister in an earthly sanctuary. Instead, he ministers in a spiritual sanctuary. He ministers in the true sanctuary. He ministers in the true most holy place, which is at the very right hand of God. That was the point the Hebrew writer was making in chapter 9. In chapter 8, we see the old covenant is better or is, is inferior, I'm sorry, to the new covenant because the new covenant contains better promises. And then in chapter 9, we see the new covenant is also better than the old covenant because the high priest ministers in a better sanctuary, the true sanctuary. And then in chapter 10, we find a third reason as to why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And that is not only do you find better promises, and a better sanctuary under the new covenant, but also under the new covenant, you find a better sacrifice. Better promises, better sanctuary, better sacrifice. That's the point of chapter 10. And so let's start with verses 1 through 18. Verses 1 through 18. Let's read the word of God. Hebrews 10. For the law, since it, only, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. And the idea there is that the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices that were being offered under the Old Covenant, they didn't please God. They didn't really satisfy the justice of God. But this is what did satisfy the justice of God. Let's keep reading. But a body. A body you. And this is the son talking to the father. God the son talking to God the father. A body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. And the scroll of the book, of it is written of me to do your will, O God. 
after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now I want to remind you of the purpose of these videos. Due to the fact that we don't have a, a relatively long time in these studies, we want to go about 40 minutes or so, no, no more than about 45 minutes at least. So due to that, we don't have a lot of time to go into a lot of detail on these things. The purpose of these videos is to give you the overall point and, and idea of what's being taught so that you can then go back later in your personal study and maybe be able to comprehend this a little bit better. But I just want to give you the main point of what's being said, and I hope you can see this is a long chapter. It is an extremely meaty chapter. Thankfully, some of the things in this chapter are things we've kind of talked about already. They're just being emphasized again. But just try to keep up with me on this. Uh, I, I know some of this can be somewhat difficult, but I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible. Let's just break down these first 18 verses. The point, and maybe you can write this in the, in the margins of your Bible, uh, write this in your notes. The point of verses 1 through 18 is that the Old Testament sacrifices, the sacrifices that were done under the Old Covenant, they were insufficient. They were insufficient. These Hebrew Christians were actually thinking about leaving Jesus leaving his covenant to return to a covenant that had an insufficient sacrifice system. That's the point. The Old Testament animal sacrifices, they were insufficient. Specifically, they were insufficient when it came to providing an avenue for men and women to receive true forgiveness of sins. They just were not going to cut it. In verse number 1, the writer says that the sacrifices under the old law were designed by God to be a shadow. They were merely a shadow. They were a shadow of what would take place under the new covenant. The idea of a shadow is they were not the real thing. Well, they represented the real thing. They, they, they in, in some ways, gave a lot of clues as to what the real thing was going to be like, but the Old Testament sacrifices, they were not the real thing. They were not to be the final religion 
for mankind. They were not to be the true avenue in which men and women were to take to receive forgiveness from a holy God. They were a shadow. They never took away sins. They never truly cleansed the conscience of the sinner. I mean, if they truly cleansed the conscience of the sinners when they were offered, then the Hebrew writer makes the point that then why in the world did they have to be offered all the time? I mean, if these sacrifices were sufficient, if they truly brought about forgiveness, if they truly cleansed the conscience of the worshipers, then why did they have to be offered every year, every month, every week, every day? The fact that they had to be offered all the time should have showed the worshipers that they were insufficient, that they were not the final path that God wanted men to take, that they were not the real avenue in which would lead to forgiveness from God. They were a shadow. Instead of fully taking away sins, which they did not do, instead of doing that, in verses 2 through 3, what the Hebrew writer says is what these sacrifices really did, what their main purpose was, was to constantly remind Israel of sin. It was to serve as a constant reminder of sins. Every time somebody brought a bull or a goat or a dove and, all, and offered it on the altar, that animal being killed, that innocent animal being killed, was designed to remind Israel of the horrors and the seriousness of sin. It was to remind them that sin is serious to God. It was to remind them that blood had to be shed in order to receive forgiveness. It was to remind them that something better, a better sacrifice was, was needed at some point. Hebrew writer says that instead of fully taking away sins, the purpose, the main purpose of these sacrifices was to constantly remind the people of Israel of their sins. It was to remind them that something better was needed. In verse number four, he emphasizes the point when he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. An animal, an animal's blood it's not powerful enough to take away the sins of people like you and I. It's an animal. Animals are, are not as superior to, to as humans are. They're inferior to humans. We learned that back in the book of Genesis. We can't expect the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. That Old Testament sacrifice system, it was an insufficient system, but the system that would be given under the new covenant the sacrifice that would that would take place through Jesus, that sacrifice would be sufficient. It, it would be sufficient to, to provide the avenue in which we needed to enter again into a relationship with God. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away our sins, but the blood of Jesus can. That's the point that he makes beginning with verse number five. In fact, it's starting with verse number five, if you go back to the text, starting with verse number five and going all the way through verse number nine, what the writer does there is he quotes from the Old Testament. Do you see that? 
He quotes from Psalm 40. Psalm 40. That, that is a psalm that is messianic. That is a messianic psalm that would talk about the coming work of the Messiah, Jesus. And here's the point of what the Hebrew writer is doing there, okay? The point he's doing is he is wanting the writers to understand that while the animal sacrifice system of the old covenant was insufficient when it came to providing forgiveness of sins, what God was going to do through his son, that would be sufficient. That would be very sufficient. God was going to provide an avenue for us to receive true forgiveness by making his son a body. He was going to give his son, who is also God, he was going to give him a body. And the body that God the Father would give his son would be a body that would be better than the body of animals. It would be better than the body of bulls and goats. Instead, it would be a human body. It would be a body just like you and I have. God was going to give his son a body. And he was going to give his son a body for a very specific purpose. The purpose of God giving his son a body was, according to the Hebrew writer, through that body, God's son was going to come into the world and do his will. Jesus said to God, you've given me a body to come and do your will. That's why he was received a body. The question is, when did that happen? When did Jesus receive this body? Or when did God, the Son, receive a body to come into the world to do God's will? Well, we all know the answer to that question. It was when he was miraculously born of a virgin. You know, one of the things that saddens me as a gospel preacher is so often we don't want to talk about the birth of Jesus, the miraculous birth of Jesus until around Christmas time, which, by the way, we don't know when Jesus was born. Christmas is a, is a man-made religion. It's a man-made holiday. In fact, in all likelihood, Jesus was not even born in the month of December, let alone even in the wintertime. So often we don't want to talk about the miraculous birth of Jesus until the holiday season, and yet when we study our Bibles very carefully, we see that the miraculous birth of Jesus is a big part of the gospel story. Unless Jesus is given a body, unless he is born of a virgin, he can't come into the world to do God's will. He can't come into the world to die on a cross for our sins. He has to be given a body to do the will of God. And he was given that body. When he was miraculously placed in the Virgin Mary, and when she gave birth to him, when he came into the world, he had a body. God did it miraculously, and by using a young teenage girl, she may have been probably 14 or 15 years old, a young teenage girl, God used a girl named Mary. When she gave birth to Jesus, you now have the Son of God in the world, in the natural world. You have God with flesh on. You have God's Son with a body. 
he has a body specifically so it could be a sacrifice for sins. He has a body so that he can live a sinless life, so that he can keep the law of God perfectly, and then eventually offer up his perfect life on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He's given a body so he can die. And by dying, he is doing an end or, comp- or putting an end to the old law, and he's establishing the new. That's all the Hebrew writer is saying in those verses. Look at them very carefully. Jesus was given a body to come and do God's will, and God's will for him through the body of Jesus was to be a sacrifice for our sins. It was to provide an avenue for us to receive forgiveness from God, and it was also designed by God to allow Jesus to do away with the old covenant and establish the new. Jesus had to die in an earthly body for these things to take place. That's why God gave his son a body. And so the whole point, really, of the first 10 verses there, the Hebrew writer is just trying to say, we have a superior sacrifice as Christians. As Christians... We're able to receive true forgiveness, not because we go to Jerusalem and offer up bulls and goats and turtle doves. No, we're able to receive forgiveness from God because God's son came into the world with a body that was a perfect body, a sinless body, and it was offered on a cross for the remission of our sins. Why would we want to go and live under a system that, was, that had insufficient sacrifices? Why would we want to go and live under a system where the people offered up animals every year, every month, every week, every day, and we have God's son who offered himself up for us one time for all time so we can receive forgiveness? The point is Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. The animal sacrifices, they were insufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient. It is superior to the animal sacrifices in every single way. When you look at verses 11 through 14, the writer then emphasizes how what Jesus did as the high priest is superior to what the high priest or the priest in general did under the old covenant. Again, he he makes the point beginning with verse 11 that those Priests under the Old Testament, they offered up sacrifices all the time. All the time. Every single day. But but Jesus, he offered himself one time. One time. For all time. He doesn't have to do it every year, every month, every day. His sacrifice is so sufficient that they can only had to be done one time. For us to receive forgiveness. That's the point the writer's making. Jesus, through his offering, through the offering of himself, he has fully completed God's plan. No longer do any sacrifices need to be offered as far as the shedding of blood. When Jesus did it, that appeased the wrath of God, that appeased the justice of God through Jesus' sacrifice 2,000 years ago. The avenue to heaven has been made wide open. 
all men and women can receive forgiveness from God if they come into contact with the blood of Jesus by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. Paul makes that point in Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. And so, when you look at verses 15 through 18, the writer's going to make the point, no other sacrifices are needed anymore. We don't need any more sacrifices as far as the shedding of blood. Through Jesus' blood, verse 17, we can receive true forgiveness. Through Jesus' blood, when we humble ourselves before God and we seek God's forgiveness according to his plan, God says, I will forgive you for your sins and I will remember your sins no more. In other words, we don't have to worry about God bringing those things against us on the judgment day. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that God says, because he shed that blood, I will forgive you and I will remember your sins no more. It's like it never happened. Verse 18 says, you look at verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. You don't have to worry about when you sin. When you sin, you don't have to worry about going and getting a bull or a goat and taking it to Jerusalem, to the temple. And if you did have to do that, there wouldn't be any temple there anyway because that was destroyed 2,000 years ago. So even if we wanted to, we couldn't do that today. Not the way it was done in the old law, but we don't have to. Whenever we sin, we don't have to go get a bull or a goat and, 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 and shed its blood, kill it, and allow it to bleed out to receive forgiveness from God. No, because of Jesus, what he did, if we want to receive forgiveness, all we have to do is, is, is submit to God's will. If we're Christians, all we have to do is say, God, forgive me, and he'll forgive us. He'll forgive us because we came into contact with the blood of Jesus when we were immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And so the point of the first 18 verses is Jesus, his sacrifice is superior. We have a far more superior sacrifice under the new, under the new covenant. The question, though, is this. How should we respond to this superior sacrifice? How should we respond to God giving his son a body to come into the world to live a perfect life and die on a cross for our sins? Well, the answer to that is actually found beginning with verse number 19. Verse 19, therefore, because Jesus has offered himself for you, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since we have this great high priest, since we have this great sacrifice, since we have this new covenant that we live under, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and, re and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the grace of God? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, this is what I want to do in this section. But I want to... What I want to emphasize here from this section, the main thing to see is here the Hebrew writer is getting very practical. He is saying that because Jesus gave himself for you as a sacrifice, you need to respond in this way. You need to live this way and do these things because of what Jesus did at Calvary. What do we need to do? Well, look at a few things. He says, beginning with verse number 22, we need to draw near to God. We need to draw near to God. We need to get as close to God as possible, praying to him often, reading our Bibles constantly, thinking of him constantly, worshiping him constantly. We need to get as close to God as possible. We need to always remember that the only reason we're able to be in fellowship with God is because of Jesus. Instead of getting further away from God as Christians, instead of neglecting things like prayer and Bible study and worship, the Hebrew writer says you need to draw near to God. Get close to God if you really appreciate what Jesus did. He says we need to have a sincere heart, not a corrupt heart, a genuine heart, a sincere heart a heart that is really dedicated to God, and we need to, to have full assurance of faith. Full assurance. You know, so often as Christians, we walk around scared. I wonder if I'm going to heaven. I, 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 I wonder if I'm really going really, really to make it. I guess I can't know if I'm, I'm going to go to heaven until the judgment day when I stand before God. So often as Christians, we, we live our lives paranoid. We live our lives afraid. We act as though we can earn our way to heaven, and we totally forget about the grace of God. We totally fail to see that the blood of Jesus is powerful. Jesus didn't die on a cross so we can walk around scared all the time. He didn't die on a cross so we can walk around paranoid, wondering if, if I'm really going to be saved. No, the reason why Jesus died on the cross is so that we can live our lives with full assurance of faith. God wants us to draw near to him with confidence, not near to him with fear. Confidence. Now, don't mistake confidence for arrogance. I don't mean arrogance. I mean confidence because we know God is good, God is faithful, God is on our team, God knows our hearts. God knows if we're really trying to serve him faithfully and he wants us to be saved. He's not sitting behind the bushes hoping to pop out at some point when, when we mess up and say, gotcha, I knew you were going to mess up, now you're going to hell. If God wanted to send us to hell that bad, why did he even send Jesus into the world in the first place? He could have threw us in hell a long time ago. Doesn't make any sense, does it? 
The Hebrew writer says God wants us to live with a full assurance of faith. He wants us to hold fast the confidence of our hope without wavering. Because we know God is faithful. What is the confidence of your hope? Well, it is what your, where your hope is found. It's found in Jesus. It's found in the fact that before we got baptized, we confessed with our mouths that we believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe he's the Lord. We got to hold fast to that confession. We got to hold fast to what we say we believe with our mouths. We also got to help each other go to heaven. We have to encourage each other. We got to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We got to motivate each other to, to give God our best. God wants this to be a family effort, a team effort. You got to help me go to heaven. I got to help you go to heaven. And one of the ways in which we stimulate one another to love and good works is in the worship assembly. The Hebrew writer says that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves. That's the idea of assembling for worship. We shouldn't forsake that because through that process, we can encourage each other. We can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We can help each other press on in the cause of Christ. You know, while many of us, and I say this sincerely, many of us right now around this country, we're having to worship at home. Our shepherds have made tough decisions. And we have great shepherds at Monta Vista, and I love them. And they've made tough decisions. Elders around the country made tough decisions trying to keep people healthy, trying to put us in a position to be good to our neighbors, to do the right thing. And, and, and because of that, many of us are having to, to worship at home. We're doing the best we can right now. None of us want to have to do that, but, but we're having to. Okay? We, we, that's the reality we live in. And we're doing the best we can. But I think we can all agree on this. That even though we're doing the best we can right now, and I think God understands our circumstance is unusual. And even though we're doing the best we can, it's still nothing like being gathered together, is it? It's nothing like that. If there's any time in my life where I truly appreciate God's plan, it's right now. I get it now. I truly get it. I mean, while I'm trying my best to worship God with my family at home during this time, I, 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 I miss being able to do this right here. I just do. I miss being able to stimulate my brothers and sisters to love and good deeds. I miss them being able to do that for me. I miss being able to encourage each other. And I think we all miss that. We, we all miss that as faithful Christians. And we, we get why that is so important because we haven't had it for several weeks. We understand that when we worship together, we're able to do so many wonderful things for each other. We get that. So verses 19 through 25, they just talk about how we should respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. We need to have confidence. We need to hold on to the confession of our faith. We need to encourage each other, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Don't forsake the, the worship assembly. That's how we should respond. And then in verses 26 through 31, after encouraging these Christians and telling them what to do, to show appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus, he gives them a warning. There's a warning in verses 26 to verse 31, and the point of the warning is this. The, the point of the language he uses when he says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Here's the point of that section. The point is, if one rejects Jesus, if one leaves Jesus, if one rejects Christianity, there is nothing left to save them. There's nothing left that's going to save you. There's no other path to, to true forgiveness. There's no other sacrifice that's going to come from heaven that's going to be more superior than Jesus. If you reject Jesus, if you reject Christianity, you have nothing else left to bring you to repentance and save you. This language here is very similar to what we read back in Hebrews 6. He says that those who turn away from Jesus, not only will you have nothing else left to save you, but you're going to refine yourself on the receiving end of the wrath of God. You're going to find yourself receiving judgment from God. He says of those who broke the old covenant, the insufficient covenant, the inferior covenant, if those who broke the law of Moses were punished by death on the testimony of two or three witnesses, what do you think is going to happen to us if we break the covenant of Jesus? What do you think is going to happen to us if we break the superior covenant, the covenant of God's son? What do you think is going to happen to us if we disregard the sacrifice of Jesus and we insult the spirit of grace? The implication of that is bad things are going to happen. Terrifying things are going to happen to us. Judgment from God is going to occur. And the Hebrew writer says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The point is, if we reject Jesus and his sacrifice and leave him, it's going to be real, real bad for us when we stand before God. And then, let me read these last verses and then we're going to conclude. Verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Well, you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that you so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he, shrink backs, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the, preser the, to the preserving of the soul. So much I could say about those verses. But let me wrap this video up. The whole point of that section is after giving these Christians a warning of what would happen to them if they left Jesus, he then encourages them again. He says, don't give up. While these things could happen to you if you leave Jesus, don't let them happen to you. Don't give up. He says, remember all you've endured so far for the cause of Jesus. Remember how you've been persecuted. Remember, he says, how you've been made a public spectacle, how you've gone through great sufferings, how you've had your property seized. You know, we can read about the persecution of Hebrew Christians as early as Acts, the book of Acts chapter 8. 
And, and many say that many of these Christians may have been included in those who obeyed the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. That means that some of these people may have been Christians for about almost 40 years at this point. And they've been persecuted severely for their faith. That's why they even contemplating leaving, leaving Jesus. They've had their property seized. They've been imprisoned. They've been made a public spectacle. They've gone through so many terrible things for the cause of Jesus. And the Hebrew writer says, don't forget that. Don't forget all you've endured for the cause of Christ. Remember, you, you're going through these things for a reason. You're going through these things because you believe in Jesus and you believe that following him will lead you to heaven. Don't throw away your confidence. In verse 36, he says, develop endurance. As a Christian, we need to be able to endure. We need to understand that we're not running a, a, a little, small, little small mile race. Instead, we're running a marathon. And you can't win a spiritual marathon unless you have endurance. We got to be willing to endure for the cause of Christ. We can't give up no matter what comes our way, even if it's persecution. In verses 37 through 38, he emphasizes this point by quoting from the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2. He says in verse 37, for yet a little while, he who is coming will, not, will come and will not delay. It is my belief that in that verse, He's probably referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. That was coming very soon if you hold the view, and most do, that the book of Hebrews was written a few years before 70 A.D. And he's telling these Christians, you hang in there because God's going to vindicate you soon. Soon the old covenant system will officially be done away because the temple is going to be torn down. God will avenge you soon. You hang in there. I think in the immediate context, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Otherwise, this wouldn't have been any encouragement to these Christians. But if you want to put it at us and say that it's talking about the second coming of Jesus, well, the same could also be true because we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. He come back today for all we know. And we need to hang in there because we don't want to be on the receiving end of his wrath when he returns like a thief in the night. Verse 38, he makes the point that God doesn't take pleasure in those who are walking by faith at one point but eventually lose their faith. They eventually give up. God doesn't take pleasure in people like that. Point is, because of what God has done for us through Jesus, we need to live thankful lives, lives of gratitude, and lives in which, and lives in which we're doing our best to be faithful to God. That's the point that the Hebrew writer is making. In fact, this point will be emphasized even further when we get to chapter 11 in our next video. Chapter 11 is one of the great chapters of the New Testament. It's a chapter where the Hebrew writer gives practical examples of people who had faith and had endurance, and because they never quit on the Lord, they were blessed in the next life. And so thank you for studying with me in this video, Lord willing, on the Lord's Day, we're going to look at what is commonly called the Hall of Faith.